0: This is Oscar Watch. I'm your host, Stephen Pugia. A little bit different this week. Alex Riviello, my longtime co host, uh, is not here due to scheduling. Alex will unfortunately have to be taking a step back from uh, Oscar Watch, which is very sad. So, for the foreseeable future, I'm going to be flying solo. So, this should be very interesting. Alex is, of course, will always be a dear. Member of this uh, podcast, and we wish him well and also a little a little break in all of the madness that is his uh, his time and we hope he can at least find a moment or two to sleep and do some fun things every now and then in the meantime it will be just me but I am will be trying out a round of guest hosts and maybe hopefully find a More permanent co-host at some point in the near future, but we'll see about that. Uh, So, if you came for Alex, I deeply apologize. It is just me. But you are listening to Oscar Watch this week, and the show must go on. And this week we are talking about the 1949 Best Picture winner, All the King's Men, written and directed by Robert Rosen. And which... Should, which I like to think would make a lively debate if we were debating it. Instead, I'm going to monologue for a little less time than uh, normal. This should not be a particularly long episode. Here's hoping at least. Uh, first, a little house cleaning, housekeeping at the uh, top. If you have emails that you would like to send with comments or happy thoughts or even criticisms, you can find us at. Podcast at gmail.com We love hearing from you people You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter Twitter at OscarWatchPod Instagram at OscarWatchPod I keep saying one day I will get around to putting up a website but let's be honest I don't know if that will happen but I will keep saying I will because it is important to have a website these days and we can't always just link to SoundCloud So with all that in mind Do reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. But, okay. All the King's Men. 1949 Best Pitch Winner. At this point, you know, Alex and I, we would talk about some of our experiences. Maybe give you a brief outline of the plot and story. It's usually about a 10 to 15 minute segment where we sort of banter. We catch up with each other during the week. Just know that I'm doing fine. It's really hot out. Not particularly pleasant but in the meantime, we'll just talk about the movie. It is based on the Robert Penn Warren novel of the same name, which won the Pulitzer Prize earlier, uh, a few years earlier. And actually, as, as of right now, is the last Best Picture winner to ever also have been based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, and it has been roughly 70 years since that happened. It tells the story of Willie Stark, a small-town political character, shall we say, who, who begins his career high and mighty and noble, and we follow him through his descent into darkness and despair, and how Absolute Power truly does corrupt absolutely. It is a stunning and extremely relevant piece of pop culture entertainment that I think everyone will still love. So after this podcast, or even maybe right now, you should go out and you should check that out. If things sound a little freeform right now, I am playing off the cuff, and I usually have a partner here. So I apologize. It gets better later on. I like to think so, at least. The film stars Broder C- Crawford as Willie Stark, John Ireland as Jack Burden still one of the greatest names in noir history, if you ask me. Mercedes McCambridge also won the Best Supporting Actress, and a host of other people, Joanne Drew, among others. Uh, Shot in black and white, written, directed by Robert Rosen. Rosen uh, is a prolific screenwriter of the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s. However, he is perhaps most known in Hollywood circles as having talked to the House Un-American committees back in 1953. He did name names, uh, 57 to be exact, and was... he Unlike uh, his classmate shall we say his colleague Ilya kazan his career never really flourished after that he did he did do a few things and they were well received for instance he did do the color of money but i'm oh, sorry not the color of money the hustler scorsese did the color of money rosen did the uh, rosen did the hustler which earner which garnered a numerous amount of awards and uh Recognition and also brought Pool back to the mainstream, but uh, uh, he was resented till the day he died because you don't talk. Rosen was a member of the of an American Communist League, so when they brought him before, when they brought when Huac, that terrible organization, brought him before, I suppose they did have reason, albeit that reason is still a witch hunt and we hope is not replicated any time in the future of this country of ours, despite all the problems we may have. One can see the appeal of this novel to Rosen, because it is a completely non rosy picture of American politics. And we will get into that a bit later. Uh generally I there are two seconds sections at the beginning. There's plot Banter, and then there then we talk about the Academy Awards of that year. I am just going to skip right into the Academy Awards, then we'll take a little break, and then we'll get right into the movie and we will get you kids out of here and back to school ever so quickly. So All the Kings Men, it was nominated for seven awards that uh, year in nineteen forty for the year nineteen forty nine, so the ceremony took place in nineteen fifty. Uh, it won three obviously best picture best actor went to Broderick Crawford and also supporting actress Mercedes McCambridge who played the whip smart feisty shall we say pistol of a political consultant Sadie uh it was also nominated for best director Rosen best editing best supporting actor John Ireland and of course best screenplay back then they did not distinguish between original and adapted uh Uh, They would not do that until some time later. The other nominees that year were Battleground, which was the first significant World War II movie post-war. It was about a company in the 101st Airborne, not easy company, uh, at the Battle of uh, Bastogne, which you can see in one of the seminal episodes of Band of Brothers. Uh, The Heiress, a dark romance based on a play. Uh, and directed by William Wyler, one of the one of the all time great Hollywood uh, directors, and it won the most awards that year. A letter to three wives, yet another book adaptation. Who says that old time Hollywood was more original than new time Hollywood? Uh, and I wrote in my notes, which was going to be funny with Alex here. It's about a dame sending letters to other dames, and uh, finally. Uh, It's uh, 12 O'Clock High, another popular and critically successful World War II movie about pilots, uh, which was also preserved in the National Film Registry for its cultural and historical significance. It's also marked the last time that all five nominees were in black and white. Uh, And I unfortunately have not seen the others, so I cannot comment on their quality. Time being what it is, we really have only time to see the one movie, the best picture and we will tell you where where it might stand at the end though I'm feeling pretty good about the academy's decision so far also that year a special award was given to Cecil B DeMille yes this is 1949 Cecil B DeMille had been operating for god about 50 years now he was given a special lifetime achievement award and later the golden globe lifetime achievement award would be re- would be called the Cecil B DeMille award So what was happening in 1949? I gave you the movies that came out, the other movies that were nominated. Uh, But in 1949, let's see. There were a number of historical and significant world events that may have shaped the mood of the time. For instance, the Berlin Airlift began in May and ended on September 30th. That was the uh, Allies' attempt to keep... Hold on, I know this one. West Berlin going Uh, while it was uh, strangled uh, inside the uh, communist communist zone. Oh, Russia. Russia tested a nuclear bomb. NATO was established. And you can definitely sense why there might be some anti- government sentiments and films starting to come out now people don't like it when big government gets even bigger and nato definitely represents one of those things the north atlantic treaty organizations uh the people's republic of china is established in mainland china under chairman mao and perhaps also more presciently george orwell's 1984 which he wrote in 1948 was first printed in england in june of 1949 president of the president at this time was truman he was in his second president he was in his uh, official elected term he had just defeated uh dewey in that famous uh fomo in that famous photo where it says dewey defeats truman but it was actually the other way around and yeah it's a little a little history uh It's more fun as a conversation. I will be self-deprecating this entire time, folks. So just uh, bear with me while I try and figure out what to do without a co-host. Maybe one day I'll just have a conversation against myself if I'm that clever of an editor. But I'm afraid I'm not. So I'm going to take a short break, drink some water. And when I come back, we are going to get into All the King's Men. Stick around. Ladies and
1: gentlemen. Tonight we have seen Hollywood at its Sunday best. As great as the temptation is to share in the dignity of the evening and add to the added contribution of well-deserved superlatives, about the only thing left to say is, meet the champion. And the nominations for the best picture of the year are All the King's Men, a Robert Rawson production, Columbia, Battleground, Metro Golden Mayor, The Heiress, Paramount, A Letter to Three Wives, 20th Century Fox, and 12 O'Clock High, 20th Century Fox. Yambook, please. The winner, All the King's Men, Robert Ross Columbia. So Robert Rawson is coming to the stage to accept the award for All the King's Men. Great picture starring two of our winners already this evening. Mr. Broderick Crawford, the best actor, and Mercedes McCambridge.
0: Okay, and welcome back to the podcast. This is Oscar Watch. I'm your host, Stephen Puget, and this is All the King's Men. All the King's Men, directed by the great or terrible, depending on your worldview, Robert Rosen, is an engaging and powerful political drama. It is Greek tragedy told through the American political theater. Based on the Robert Penn Warren novel of the same name, which won the Pulitzer Prize a few years before, the movie begins by following Jack Burden, played by John Ireland, a reporter with one of the best names in cinema, who is assigned to do a story on a small-town treasury candidate named Willie Stark, played by Academy Award winner Broderick Crawford. The reason for this story? Because, in the words of Burden's editor, Stark is an honest man. And sure enough, Stark is. He's a great character, noble, upright, and truthful. Precisely the kind of guy you want to vote for, and precisely the kind of guy who does not win elections. Which Stark doesn't. Where would the drama be in that? Had the film simply been an in-depth look at small-town politics and how it tries to break a good man, well, then it would be a damn good movie even if it would tread a little too close to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Rosen, however, is not Frank Capra. His view of America's government, which is undoubtedly influenced by his affiliation with the American Communist Party, is much less rosy and optimistic. Good men don't last against the political machine that is America, and those with the best of intentions fall farthest from the tree. The old cliché is, of course, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Willie Stark is that phrase manifested wholly and completely. During an ultimately unsuccessful bid for governor of the never-named state in the film, Stark learns that he is just a patsy, a way to siphon off votes for the real contender. That gets him mad as hell, and he's not going to take it anymore. In the film's first of many fiery speeches, Stark goes off on the party establishment and the folks who follow, calling them Hicks and, to put it bluntly, telling it like it is. Let's listen.
1: Now listen to me, you Hicks. Yeah, you're Hicks too, and they fooled you a thousand times just like they fooled me. But this time I'm going to fool somebody. I'm going to stay in this race. I'm on my own and I'm out for blood. Now listen to me, you Hicks. Listen to me and lift up your eyes and look at God's blessed and unfly-blown truth. And this is the truth. You're a hick. And nobody ever helped a hick but a hick himself. All right, listen to me, listen to me. I'm the hick they were going to use to split the hick vote, But I'm standing right here now on my hind legs. Even a dog can learn to do that. Are you standing on your hind legs? Have you learned to do that much yet? Here it is. Here it is, you hicks. Nail up anybody who stands in your way. Nail up Joe Harrison. Nail up McMurphy. And if they don't deliver, give me the hammer and I'll do it myself.
0: Okay, so maybe I'm not a hick. I live in New York after all. But even now, I'd vote for him. Listening to that, I'm reminded of Bernie Sanders' rise to power this election season, tearing down the establishment and reminding us that like we're never going to get out of this Americans ourselves. Are angry. Or perhaps, unfortunately, they are it's angry more that like are that other guy America. who is running, playing on I'm our fears angry, and baser our
1: instincts. Is being run
0: horribly. Even today, I would vote for that Willie Stark, the one at the beginning the man of conviction and passion of honesty, however brutal, but this is not that kind of movie either. And shortly after his loss, Willie goes into perpetual campaign mode because he says he's found out how to win. And as triumphant as his speech was the way he so flatly declares that he has figured it out. Well, there is only one direction for Willie Stark to go in the novel. Jack Burton was the main character, and we saw the campaign trail and Willie's eventual governorship through his eyes. And while Ireland still provides the voiceover in the film, guiding us from place to place and time to time, there is no doubt who is the star of this tragedy. Broderick Crawford, a portly, balding man with the charisma of Barack Obama.
1: My friends, my friends, I, I have a speech here. It's a speech about what this state needs. There's no need in my telling you what this state needs. You are the state and you know what you need. You over there. Look at your pants. Have they got holes in the knees? Listen to your stomach. Did you ever hear it rumble for hunger? And you, what about your crops? Did they ever rot in the field because the road was so bad you couldn't
0: get them to market? Crawford inhabits the role of Willie Stark, shifting so easily between caring, naive, innocent to battle hardened political monster. Yet, he never falls into over the top absurdity, though I am sure the temptation was there. He remains a murky character, one of the best politicians American cinema has ever produced, precisely because he firmly believes that the ends justify the means. Everything he does, every corner he cuts, every bribe he makes, every man he has killed, even now, is for the greater good. Willie Stark has a vision, a beautiful vision, the best vision you'll ever see. Believe me, just, just the, it's just the best vision. It's just the best vision. And God help those who stand in his way. Best laid plans of mice and men. And... All that jazz I
1: really believe that Stark wants to do good, you do too. it's a matter of method. many times out of evil comes good. But pain is evil as a doctor, you should know that
0: supporting Willie on his rise to power is John Ireland, the intrepid reporter who becomes willie's consigliary of sorts. Burton provides the moral center he's the audience cipher he too like us, initially falls in love with Willie and continues to convince himself that the man is a good governor, despite all evidence to the contrary. Ireland has a lot of emotional lifting to do, and he's not always up to the task, for sure, but he acquits himself just fine. It's not that we don't like Burden and his incredible name. It's just that Willie is so huge, so dazzling a character, that Jack's love life and family drama feels silly until governor willie stark comes knocking and then things really kick off the crux of the film revolves around willie's manipulation of the stark family through this brood of well-blooded all americans we see the victims of willie's corruption yes absolute power corrupts its wielder absolutely but it is also an infection a plague a disease that festers in those around him a rot To the core. That is the aptly named Burden Clan, a family doomed to rise and fall alongside Stark. They carry the governor's sins until it destroys them, and when it comes time for sparks to fly, it is a burden that pulls the trigger. All the King's Men is cut unlike many things in that era. There is a pace, a life, and especially when put up against our last picture, you can't take it with you, a cutting style unlike any other. The original cut of the film was over four hours long until Rosen told his editor to simply cut it down to its barest essentials. Sometimes you need a non-interested pair of eyes to create something so wonderful. The result is two hours of Italian neorealism-inspired wonder, a film so chock-full of montages that you expect Gonna Fly Now from Rocky to start playing at any moment. Modern audiences often shirk at black and white films from the 40s and 50s, decrying them as too slow. May I humbly present All the King's Men as Exhibit A, a film that hits the ground running and does not stop until the very last frame. I, unfortunately, had to watch this over the course of several sessions due to time constraints, but I found myself every time immediately transported back to the campaign trail or the governor's office, able to conjure up names and places and plot details with little effort. Ask my wife, and she'll tell you that I sometimes forget where my glasses are. Hint, they're usually on my face. And that's how perfectly crafted this film is. Now, it's not all great. While the character of Sadie, played by Mercedes McCambridge, who also won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress that year, is a whip-smart, fiery, and confident woman... A rare find by even today's standards, Jack Burton's love interest Anne, Joanne Drew, is little more than a pretty face. A wilting flower, no really, she is a wilting flower that faints on a dime and is torn between Jack and Riley in a silly love triangle meant to further divide the two men. Much like Captain America Civil War earlier this year, the ideological shifting of the two men, or two characters, or should I say moral shifting, is interesting enough for the film that this angle seems like studio-mandated claptrap. Which is not to say that Ireland and Crawford don't make it work. Drew, on the other hand, is left with little to, little to do besides be pathetic.
1: Well, listen to me, you hit. That's right, I'm not the only one here. You hicks too, they fooled you too, just like they fooled me a thousand times. But it's time I fooled somebody, it's time I fooled them. Them big city striped dead, mixed little hick haters.
0: I'm Despite being, now, or perhaps because of, the film's inauguration into the Library of Congress as part of the National Film Registry in 2001, the film was remade in 2006, written and directed by Steve Zalian, who also wrote Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, an episode you can find on iTunes. But I digress. The remake features an all-star cast with Sean Penn as Willie Stark, Jude Law as Jack Burton, and also Anthony Hopkins, Patricia Clarkson, the late great James Gandolfini, and is supposedly terrible. Despite the slightly modern storyline now taking place in the 50s and that whole... It's in color thing. The film failed to find an audience and really any critical support. Goes to show that just because a tale is timeless doesn't mean it belongs in every time. The original All the King's Men is absolutely timeless. It is as relevant today as it was during the Truman administration. In fact, every presidential candidate, hell, every person who seeks office, should be forced to watch this at the beginning of their campaign. Everyone might come to Washington as a Mr. Smith, but most will probably leave as a Willie Stark. So, now, did the Academy make the right choice? Well, not having seen any of the others, I'm sad to say, I will still say that, yes, All the King's Men absolutely deserves the title of Best Pitcher. And I can safely say it is amongst my favorite of the albeit few films we have looked at so far here on Oscar Watch. And I hope you have enjoyed this little, slight, bite-sized departure from our usual uh, format of doing this show. Again, I will be trying out co-hosts and by trying out co-hosts i mean i will be suckering friends and colleagues into talking about movies over the next couple of weeks perhaps settling on a permanent replacement or maybe just making it a one-man show with occasional guest hosts but discussions about film are always so much better with people you care about and whose opinions you value and next week on Oscar Watch, we're going to pay tribute to the late Michael Camino and discuss his greatest contribution to the film industry, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Oh, wait, no, no, sorry, that's not right. Oh, oh, right, The Deer Hunter. We're going to be talking about The Deer Hunter. Yeah, that, The next week on Oscar Watch, the brilliant Vietnam movie The Deer Hunter with Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, the late John Cazale, and, of course, Academy Award winner Christopher Walken. Tune in next week. We will see you then. Hope you enjoyed. Take care.